folks. Uh, thanks again for joining us for the General Knowledge Podcast. This is one of the uh, bonus shows for all of our wonderful supporters out there. And of course, I'm joined with my good mate and co-host, Andy Soames. Andy, how you going, mate? Good. Thank you, General. Yes, on a, on a, on a wet uh, summer's <laughs> night in Brisbane. It's feeling really good here. Yeah, mate. How, it's all this uh, rain. We finally got some fucking rain. Man. The weather modification guys must have like turned on the the weather the wet program. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think so. Who, who, do we, who do we call to thank? Yeah, we'll send them a basket of mini muffins or something. Um, yeah, yeah, you're so kind. We're in for a bit of a treat tonight. Um, before I get into bringing our um, our guest into the conversation, uh, I just want to do a quick shout out to all of the supporters. I'll just go through them and give them a shout out. So. You know who they are and who to thank. Um, of course, Addy, Chris Atwood, Jeff Tate, Nigel Day, Mino Veloda, Russell Scott, Anna Robinson, Sam Hansen, Del Sweeney, Sam Condon, Marky Williams, Ray Stitt, Pete Shearer is a new one, and Daphne Connor is also a new one as well. Thanks again to all those guys. Uh, we're slowly building our awesome supporter base, and I've got all these wonderful people there to thank uh, to help make this show what it is and to take it into bigger and better things as we move on um just got a bill today actually andy for uh, for the hosting for Podbean, which was which was lovely <laughs> oh of, yeah yeah it's always but yeah it's like i said this is why i want to do this to help try and you know alleviate some of the pain of getting a bill for that sort of stuff but it's all good man um yeah so once again thanks to all those folks um for for supporting what we do it's really good uh yeah back to the show so this one we have uh, our first author on the show. Well, actually, actually, that's not true. We have interviewed David Icke before in the past, but this is, um, I guess, more of a fiction writer, we'll say. Writes under the yeah. pen name of Vindal van der Kof. We know him as Tim. I'm pretty sure it's McHugh. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us here on the podcast, mate. Glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. You're all the way over there in Japan joining us for this show. Um, we have had a guest on from Japan, which we were sort of talking about just in the pre-show chat before. Um, everyone knows James Corbett is, of course, over there in Japan. So it's it's lo- lovely to have another person uh, who knows what's going on in the world and is wise to everything that's living in Japan. Japan seems like a pretty cool place at the moment because there is no virus hysteria. There is no lockdowns and all that bullshit that's happening here in Australia. Um, you've, you've, From what you were saying before, Tim, it's... Um, it seems like it's pretty good. It seems like a really nice place to, to live over there, mate. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful uh, autumn's night tonight. Um, and, uh, yeah, as you say, there's has not been much been going on with the pandemic hysteria. I'm sure there are a few people freaked out, but uh, basically things are running pretty well as much as normal. I went to lunch yesterday at a restaurant. It was so packed I had to wait. Like... <laughs> 15 minutes to get in i mean there's no social distance between tables or anything it was just packed you know yeah well um, that's good it's so, good to see mm. Mm, um, what's the mask thing like tim uh look this is a mask culture okay yeah, yeah they've done and, that haven't they i mean that they japanese wear masks all the time just out politeness if they've got the sniffles or something so it's that it's nothing unusual i mean i could go into a a class in winter and eight out of ten students will have a mask on hmm. okay so it's, i mean if, if you've ever been on a a jail flight 
with the Japanese, you know, half Japanese the face got yeah. masks on. Yeah, yeah. They just wear them out of politeness. I mean, it's, they're a very polite bunch of people. So, for example, like if you stop at a traffic light in the night and um, the, the uh, car opposite will turn the lights off so oh, they won't really? shine them in your face while the, while the light's red. And then when the lights go green, people turn their lights on again. And sometimes... Wow. People from behind turn their lights off too. Just, just not, just not to be impolite. And here we are, here in Australia, when you're sitting in a set of lights, and the idiot in front of you has got their high beams on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't seen too much road rage over here, mate. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. It'd be really nice if uh, some of that rubbed off here in Australia. I can tell you now. Uh, I, a, I cycle a lot too. You know, in Japan, and uh, you know, compared to cycling in Australia, where I get so much abuse from the motorists, here they stop for you and let you go. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's, oh, that's, so that's, good. The, that's the type of people they are. Well, here in Australia, mate, it's um, we've had some, like we were sort of saying earlier with Andy, there's a few storms rolling through this afternoon. Uh, we've already had a couple. There's another one on the way now. So if you do hear a bit of rain and thunder on my end, folks, uh, that's what it's all about. A bit of, bit of a thunderstorm, some much-needed rain, uh, and it'll keep me busy, that's for sure, being a gardener. But we are here, of course, to interview Tim, uh, otherwise known as the pen name of Vindal van der Koff. Um, so we've got a few questions for you, which we'll throw to you. But before we get into the book, which is, of course, titled A Brave New Future 2084 Bitcoin. It's an interesting title. But before we get into all that, I'd like you to just to tell the, the listeners, you know, just who, who, why Vindal van der Koff? Who is Tim? It is McHugh, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Who is Tim McHugh? And you know, where did you... How did you end up being a writer in Japan? Uh, and you are, of course, originally an Aussie. That's right. I grew up in Sydney. And when I was 17, I was one of the top road racers in Australia. And I was negotiating to go and race in Europe professionally. And I had a motorbike accident. Came off at 120 k's. Went headfirst into a uh, telegraph pole. Broke my back leg, arms, everything. They said I'd never walk again. Um, but, you know, I was determined to get out of there. I mean, I couldn't feel my legs for the first few weeks. Eventually, slowly, after eight months, I hobbled out of the Royal North Shore Hospital, and uh, my um, elder brother was living in Bali at the time. He just started a fashion company. And he said, come over for a few weeks and uh, recuperate. So, he bought me a ticket. I went over and I was there for seven years. Um, <laughs> and I quickly got better and I ended up running the factory for him. And, you know, we, I think we started off with 50 workers. And when I left, it was like 1,500 workers. We exported all over the world to the New York Fashion Show. It was a lace company called Uluwatu. I mean, a lot of women who are listening to this podcast who have been to Bali or know the brand still mm. exists. Um, and then I... I started to build a yacht. I had a yacht built up in the Selawesis. Um, and then I met my wife, a Japanese lady who came to Bali. And um, I went back to Japan a few months later to see her. And then she quit a job as a model and came back and lived in um, Bali with me. And when the boat was finished, well, the boat was just a raw hole. Um, it was built in between the Selawase and the Flores. A really difficult island to get to. Sometimes it would take uh, two weeks island hump hopping with uh, different fishermen to get to the island. The island was maybe from 
east to west one minute, two minute walk, and from north to south about ten minutes. And this crazy guy who ran the island was uh, a bit of, bit of an insane guy, uh, <laughs> wanting you to convert to his religion and wouldn't let us leave and all this sort of stuff. But anyway. <laughs> We sailed the boat out and sailed around Indonesia for about three or four months with no engine. It was a it was a great uh, adventure, and then went back to Bali and um, ran out of money, and um, I wanted to do something else, so I ended up coming to Japan, and uh, first in Tokyo for a few months because that's where my wife's from. I couldn't take that. And then one of my friends, actually, who was a shaper from Bali, was shaping for a guy up here where I live. And he said, come up to surf's good, nice beaches. So I came up, fell in love with the area and uh, really wanted to move and have a job. But uh, we saw this advertisement in a... It's actually... I talk about this in the book, Synchronicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of funny because the first day we looked at Hitachi City where to live, but we didn't really like it. We went back to my friend's house, and the next day we took the train, and we are going to go way up north. But just on the way, we saw this really nice area, and it reminded me of Bali with the rice fields and everything. I said to my wife, you want to get off? Yes or no? Yes, no, yes, no. So we got off, looked for a real estate agent, and uh, we said, okay, we want to move up here. We'll take that apartment. I, I didn't have a job yet. But what happened, we, that was on a Sunday. The next morning, my wife went down to the train station in Tokyo, grabbed the Japan Times, looked for a job, and there was a job for that exact place, which is Torkai Village in Japan, which is like one, of a, one out of a billion chances. The stars are lining up for you, mate, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I went in for the interview, got the job. It was a job to teach English at a nuclear power station, the actual very first nuclear power station in Japan. Wow. Anyway, I I got the job. I actually didn't got the didn't get I hadn't got the confirmation job, but we moved. And then it was actually funny because um, Nat Young had come up and he was trying to sell his book, The History of Surfing, through the same friend of mine. And I'd sort of known him a bit before because my sister used to play basketball with his wife. Anyway, it was on that night while we're drinking that I got the confirmation that it was a big celebration, and that was with Nat Young, actually. Nice. Um, then I, I worked in the nuclear power station for a month and said, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. So I quit, and then I just went, private and started my own schools and things like that um and uh i've basically been yeah doing a lot of traveling around the world and i try and spend a few months in indonesia every year because i still have family and relatives there and i i speak pretty well fluent indonesian um and i've always liked writing and i i think it was maybe 25 years ago i, I started my first book and that was a children's book called Tim's Adventures on the Planet Alpha, which got uh, got Book of the Month three times. I I'm, I'm, can't remember so long ago. I think it was on Channel 7, the children's book thing. I, can't, yeah, right, I think okay. it was Channel 7. Anyway, yeah. 
then I then I wrote another book, which was called uh, Zero on the Planet of Death Sleep. Um, that's a complete sci-fi book um, that got onto the Amazon bestseller. I think got eighteen on sci-fi, and number one on moving shakers for the day. But it, in that book, also, you know, there's a lot of sub messages in it. You know, I was talking about greed and the selfishness and what's happening in the world again. Most of the books, even though they're sci-fi, are based on something that's going on. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that's just a brief history of how I got here. And Yeah. And now you've... Um, so how many books have you written all together then? Five. Five. So in this, uh, uh, this is your latest uh, addition to that, to that five, A Brave New Future 2084 Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it was published last year in November. Yeah, and then that's quite an intriguing sort of sort of thing I wanted to to, uh, to mention as well that you know that was sort of right before all hell broke loose in the world that you've managed to publish this book and then you know it was quite <laughs> talking about synchronicities you know what I mean like yeah um, once again there we go another example you you've you've published this work of fiction and lo and behold there's a you know a lot of the the themes in the book are, are really sort of actually starting to come to fruition you know what I mean so. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, well, my wife said to me the other night, you know, you talk about these forks and different timelines. You say, you're sure you haven't created this timeline that we're on? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure, you know. I kind of wonder that too. When you sort of first, you know, you come across that in in the novel, um, I I, I, I often always thought about that as a thing that happened in... I'm sure, Andy, you've probably come across that as well in your your day or in your life or some time where you have this... It's like a fork in time, as they say. You know, you if you don't if you choose this path over the other, what you know what could happen or what happens or, but you know, I guess sort of in reality, all all um, probabilities are all happening at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it's, but you know, which timeline are we on? You know what I mean? Whereas, can, you know, and is it possible to get back to a, the right timeline? You know, where haven't things haven't you know fucked up? Basically, it was. I sort of have those moments. I kind of wonder in my life when I look back, you think, yeah, what if I'd have done this differently or if I'd have said this at the right time or, you know what I mean? Like what would have happened or would it have changed anything? And yeah, it's just quite interesting. And then you you, you actually put that theme forward in, in the book as well. It's really interesting. There is a later chapter um, where the, the Nina's teaching and she, she talks about synchronicity and... The, the example she uses is actually my example, and it's about the day that I broke my back, because actually on that day there was a uh, a training ride for for uh, cyclists and anybody interested in going in the Olympics, etc. And it it happened to be going right past my house, and they really wanted me to join in, but I w- I wanted to go for a surf that day. I just wanted to relax. Anyway, I decided to leave early and on my way down to the beach, so this is Pitwater Church Point area, um, I go up the hill and they came over the hill and they said, Tim, come on, come on. And I looked and I stopped there and I thought, which way? Shall I go that way or that way? And I just pondered there for a few minutes and I, no, I went to the beach. Then that evening I had the accident, which was actually Black Friday 13th. Oh, no, 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 sorry. It was uh, Good Friday. Wow. I got out on Black Friday the 13th, actually. <laughs> Interesting. Wow, far out. Yeah, talk about a, a moment in time. Yeah. 
Um, I actually wanted to first of all bring up the the title of the book, and I was just sort of when you were just before we started recording, uh, I was just having a chat to Andy, and I, I sort of said, you know, you've got Aldous Huxley's um, A Brave New World, and you've got you know George Orwell's 1984. You know, it's the the title is kind of a a different take on or, or a merger of that, or that some of those themes are very similar. Is that am I on the right track? There is that maybe why you yes. sort of called it? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly why I did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I've, the beginning okay. of the of the of the book as well too is you're very big on this whole questioning the narrative of you know make sure you question the narrative of what's being told and what's being you know propagandized or you know propagated via any 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 outlet you know whether it's the news or the government or whatever you're very big on you know, question the narrative. Um, and you sort of have that at the very beginning of your of your book as well, where you dedicated it to the younger generation of the planet. May you keep and protect the freedom of the world for future children. Question everything. Question the narrative. No problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. For this planet to live in peace and prosperity, humans need to go to the next level of consciousness. And I really like that, actually, that because we're sort of big on that. We're all, we in this podcast uh, the last couple of years because this is the third year of doing this podcast. Um, you know, we've well, I've had realnewsaustralia.com going since 2012, so we've been doing it for a long time. But um, we're, we're very big on that, and we talked about that in many shows, don't we, Andy? About questioning the narrative. You know, we. Yeah. It's always, yeah. It's it always comes up that the the narrative is this, and yet it's it's so far so far from the truth that it's you, know, you kind of scratch your head and wonder how people can believe it, you know. And you were in the book, the elite in the book refer to the people as as the cattle, you know what I mean? And again, that's a very powerful concept because that's also very close to the truth because you know we're we're treated like you know sheep in a sense, you know we. Even even us in the movement tend to refer to people as sheeple and all that sort of stuff, which is probably quite derogatory, really. But um, it, it's that sort of herd mentality, you know. And uh, I just wanted to sort of to to ask you, you know, is there a reason why you chose to call them, you know, the the, the elites in the book refer to people as cattle uh, in particular? Oh, for that particular reason, that the average person doesn't question the narrative. Um, accepts what the government and what the uh, media tells them. Um, it, it's it really starts from the education system right up through until you're 18. I mean, you've been programmed, you've been brainwashed, really not to question the narrative, to, to obey, to follow it. Um, and you know, people's perceptions have been very distorted by the education system, by the media especially by the media. Mm. I mean, I think David Icke calls it the perception deception. Yeah. He's right on that one. Mm. I mean, the way people perceive the world is is completely different from the reality that it is. And that's why I'm always saying question it. I always tell my students to question it. Um, and, I'm, you know, people have become to just, you know, go to work, come home, watch the television, have something to eat, go to sleep, do it again, day after day after day, without really questioning what they're doing, without even knowing what they're doing. Um, and, it, you know, it seems to me 
it's a very empty sort of way to live, you know, a very materialistic way to live without, you know, actually trying to find out what's going on, trying to understand what's going on. Yeah, it seems to be all about that self-gratification in a sense. Yeah, that's what's put as the at the forefront. You know, just let the day wash over you, have some sort of self-gratification or watch some football or TV yeah. or whatever, you know, let them and just let that wash over you and don't actually think about anything else. Well, I think the elite, the people who are in, who control the world have, you know, used all these different things to distract everybody from the reality that really exists, mm. you know. I mean, really covering it up. I mean, that quote, what is it, from Frank Zappa. Can I read that one? Please. So Frank Zappa, he says, the illusion of freedom will continue as long as it is profitable to continue the illusion. Mm. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery, they will pull back the curtain, they will move the tables and chairs out of the way, and you will see the brick wall that is at the back of the theatre. Yeah, I love Frank Zappa. He's got some wonderful quotes. Well, I, I mean, I've been getting very, very close to that now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I, I've been questioning the narrative since I've been very small, like 10 or 12 years old. I wrote a poem um, when I was 12 called Nothing Must Be Something, and Something Must Be Nothing. And, and let's see, how's it go? I don't have it in front of me. Nothing must be something, and something must be nothing. If some, if nothing is something, then something must be nothing. It goes on a little bit further. But what I'm trying to say in that poem is that it, it goes a little bit longer. I'll just have a look if I can find it in a minute. But what I'm saying is that uh, we label things that we don't understand understand like infinity or nothing um once something that we don't understand we just give it a label like okay infinity fine done nothing labeled see you later so we often just label things that we don't understand because we can't explain them in a language mm. so mm. you know the the language is very limited to how our perception of you know the consciousness and the universe and actually what is happening yeah which so, is also by design which is also by design and as i say in the book um the there is no dictionaries in in the book right the, the girl finds a dictionary and she's looking through and finding these words like rebellion mm. and revolution and she, what are these words opinion what is that so that all these words have been deleted from their their the elite dictionary which is called it's a trans word. I mean, and you, you can see that happening now with the deletion of mother and father in some schools. And yeah, that's right. Words, you know. yeah, yeah, removing gender specific specificity and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Removing yeah. that part of the language. It will take time, but it will. It might only take you know two or three generations, and then those words are forgotten. Yeah, if you know, we let them. <laughs> if we let them, but this generation of kids as he's going through this they're now being you know taught don't say mother or father daddy or mummy you know mm. that's just um that's i mean that's getting to the destruction of the family unit right yeah which yep. where huxley talks about i mean yeah. and in my book it's the same thing there is no real family unit they don't they are not naturally born they are mm. produced 
pod pod produced basically, aren't they? Pod produced, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I um I wanted to bring up the couple of quotes um in the beginning of the of the book as well, uh, which I think is on just in the fall in the yeah before the actual book starts. Uh, our consciousness interacts with another dimension. Our physical senses only show us a three-dimensional universe. What exists in the higher dimensions are entities we cannot touch with our physical senses. And that was Bernard Carr, Professor of Mathematics yes. and Astronomy from the Queen Mary University in London. That's right. Um, you know, and, and that theme again comes up in the book as well. Of course, that's why you probably put the quote there in the beginning because, you know, you've got um, that very... There's a few, very, quite a powerful scene where I think Alistair is, he wants to cross back over into the right, into the, the other timeline. And then yet he gets caught up in that, um, what would you call it, that other kind of dimension? And there's those reptilian creatures are following him. And then, you know, mm-hmm. he kind of gets rescued and then gets put back in the right timeline. So I don't want to sort of spoil too much. But um, yeah, it's very interesting because, and then you also discuss earlier how you, I think it was maybe Nina that was teaching the class and talking about how. You know the visible light spectrum is is such a very small part of the electromagnetic spectrum that exists, um, and that our our senses can only detect certain parts of that. So we can and we can only experience uh, uh, such a small part of that. So obviously, you know, it's it's more than likely that so much more exists outside of that, including other life forms and you know interdimensional type creatures, and very similar to the kind of stuff David Ike talks about, Andy, um, in that kind of sense. You know, um, we've been to uh, one of David's lectures that he had here in Australia was like ten hours long or something, and yeah, you know, he talked about that too, too didn't he, Andy, uh, in in some of his lectures? Yeah, he says it. He says it quite like you know. Like through all these books as well, mm. like um, in, you know, light spectrum is is like a pretty common you know topic amongst a lot of these people. But yeah, it's so interesting and so true. You know? Like how can how can we judge what's in front of us when we can only see such a such a tiny bit of the light spectrum that, that's there? So mm. you know, so um, there's definitely more to so- more than more than what meets the eye. Really, isn't it? Is what you could really say. There's you know that's an old saying, but it, it yeah. rings very true and you kind of need to think about that saying um, but that theme also comes up in the book Andy which I think you'll enjoy um, you know because yeah. it, it just reminded me of those those talks that, that David Ike gave and I was like when I was reading um, reading this 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 work of fiction I was like wow it's it's just exactly the sort of thing that, that Dave talks about um, but just from on what you were discussing before with regards to how the, the you know the manipulation of the masses via press and you've got a quote here as, as well think of the press as a giant keyboard on which the government can play and that's Joseph Goebbels which was you know Hitler's propaganda minister mm. um, and then of course the next one and everyone knows one of this is one of the most famous quotes if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it people will eventually come to believe it the lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political economic and or military consequences of the lie it thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent for the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie and thus by extension the truth is the greatest enemy of the state and that's again joseph goebel or goebbels um and then, and wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say that sums up exactly what's happening at the moment? Oh, you took the words out of my mouth, Tim. That is exactly what's happening right now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, if you had have told me that this time, this what 
last time when I published the book that this would be happening in October next year, I would have laughed at you. You know, you know, I, I hear people say that, right? And I reckon you would have laughed, and I reckon you would have then looked at me if I'd have said that to you. You would have looked at me in the eye and gone, "Wow, you know what? You're probably right." <laughs> Yeah, you know what I, we, uh, I it's funny we, to think we, of but yeah. I don't doubt it sorry Andy what are you saying no 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 well we, we've been talking about this like coming for a long long time mm. but yeah. you know like we, we but it, like the whole whole COVID scam thing like really blindsided us and then to segue into you know this whole Orwellian thing it's like you know like me and me in general have been like saying like all this year that like man what what a what an amazing business plan that this has been. You know, what an amazing, well-orchestrated, like, executed, like, plan. Oh, don't give me credit for that, Andy. That's that's you that kept saying, yeah, and you're right. It is literally a business plan, and you've looked at it from that sort of perspective as a, as a businessman yeah. yourself, and you just you're just watching it roll out you know we see and you know we, for these sort of things to roll out as they have what are, what do business you know businesses do they have business meetings and what took place event 201 was a big meeting to to plan it all you know and you know, they, they, these things happen for a reason you know these they don't just yeah. have a meeting and then get all these people together and then nothing happens or eventuates from it. It's there. They do it for a reason. You know what I mean? So when people go, you know, how can it be planned? You know, who, you know, why would someone plan to do all this? And that's not, that's not true. We go, well, no one, think about it. You know what I mean? That it, all the evidence is there. And even more yeah, evidence yeah. is coming out about it now too, with regards to, you know, there's um, Jane, Jane Hanlon is a, is her name. Andy, you probably saw this name come up a few times. She's like, uh, related to like the chief health officer from Victoria and she was our representative from Australia at event 201 as well you know what I mean and so she's basically the one calling the shots for Dan Andrews and you know she's one of the big players in the background that's that's connected to all this you know so um, if people think Dan Andrews is running the show then they're actually incorrect he's just a puppet master you know um, but yeah, um, so that's why I wanted to sort of bring up those quotes at the beginning of the book because those though, that that it all rings true to what's happening right now. And I I kept I I mentioned it. Um, who were we interviewing? We were interviewing uh, Dr. Judy Wileyman about her new book against um, you know the vaccination issue. And um, yeah, we I sort of mentioned it to to Judy. I said, yeah, I'm going to send you a copy of of this book because I think you'll enjoy it. But yeah, because it's a lot of the themes that are happening in this book is is what we're sort of seeing right now in um although it's a work of fiction it was i said it was published in november last year and lo and behold all this stuff that's in this book is is sort of what we're seeing now i mean the writing was on the wall i guess wouldn't you say tim you obviously follow a lot of these sources you know that we sort of like i mentioned before like corporate report and all these other well-known uh, alternative media sources and you, you know, you're you're obviously very switched on with regards to what's really going on in the world um, I'm guessing that's probably what you used as your um, ammunition with regards to you know putting that into into play. Would I be would I be right about saying that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been following this for years. I mean, I think I really woke up uh, when the Fukushima nuclear power stations blew up. You know, the tsunami and the earthquake, which I was yep. caught in the middle of. Um, yeah, just tell the I listeners because we mentioned that before we recorded. So, whereabouts in Japan are you in, in proximity to that? So I'm about 120k south of it. Wow. Yep. So not too far. And uh, the day it happened, I was sitting right where I'm now up in my office. I was just uh, 
doing a uh, promotion for the book Zeron, Planet of Death Sleep. Anyway, my daughter was back. She was actually back from university for a spring vacation. She goes, Daddy, earthquake. And what she meant was her phone was vibrating because they have a early warning mechanisms on the mobile phones. They all vibrate. Mm-hmm. It says earthquakes coming. You got about thirty seconds. And I was like, oh, whatever. Oh, you know, wow. we get so we get so many earthquakes here. It's just ridiculous, right? So I didn't really worry about. It. Then it hit and it was like boom, 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 boom. And then it, about a minute into it, it just kicked and like the house just sort of went off its foundations. I ran down the stairs everybody outside and it was just thunder the, the noise is undescribable it was just thunder the earth the shaking i've never ever felt or heard anything like it it was just insane and then it stopped and then about four minutes later another one just this big hit and i'm like whoa turned on the car radio because all the electricity was out and i just heard tsunami coming One's going to hit such and such an area in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Our area is 30 minutes, 10 meters, 30 minutes. I'm like, oh, shit. But I'm safe where I am, up on the mountain. Um, and then I, they said, if you're on the rivers, get out of the river. So I, I rang my friend who lives near a river, and she was screaming and stuff. And I could hear, and I said, geez, I better go down. So I jumped in the four-wheel drive, and the house has fallen over, and walls five, and I went across the river and I went, had a quick look and then across, couldn't get to a house. There was three houses across the road. So I went through the rice fields in the four-wheel drive, picked her up, took her to the evacuation place and I was going back. And now it was close to 30 minutes. So I had to cross the river and I, just as I was crossing the river, my phone rang as my other daughter from Australia. She said, Daddy, I've seen it on TV, the tsunami. It's like the wave out of the perfect storm. And she says, don't go across any rivers. Where are you? And I said, oh, I'm just going across the bridge. And it just cut, <laughs> and it cut out. Oh. And it cut out. Anyway, I, I couldn't talk to her for another two or three days. So she was sort of left in limbo about, you know, what happened. Anyway, got back to the house. And we were pretty okay because I had a, it was really cold. It was actually snowing. I had a, that's what a lot of people don't realize too with this tsunami it was cold water, mm. so even if you did, you know, manage to hang on to something, you're going to die of hypothermia anyway. But um, I got to the house, and you know, every 30 seconds, every minute, there was another huge earthquake. It just continued and continued all night long. But we were okay. We had a, a wood fireplace and gas bottle stove, and I've got water from the mountain, so I was fine. And then the next day, I went down to where my office is and I just wanted to see what happened to the nuclear power station which is just down the road it's the first one built and they said it's all okay then I went home and my friend rang me up and I said he said like because I knew a lot of people that worked in nuclear industry in that area and I he goes um the one in Fukushima it's melting down it looks like it's going to go I said what do you mean he goes it looks like it's going to blow I said are you certain he said yeah he said get out go south man so all, all the highways down anyway, we, we grabbed whatever we could, passports and jumped in the car. It took us like 10 hours to get to Tokyo, got there, got some more petrol and then just started heading south. And as we're heading, the, next, the first one blew, the next one blew and then the next one blew. I'm just like, wow, this is insane. I mean, talk about 
talk about a bloody nightmare. Mm. I was just, just, I had no idea if I was ever going to go back. So that was the, yeah, I really had the feeling of being a refugee then, you know, basically just, just heading, just getting away, you know. But you should write it like an autobiography sort of thing about this event and how it all happened and, you know, because you've got that, that, you know, skill of writing a fiction and descriptive writing and stuff. You should really write it about that experience itself. I'd love, I'd love to read about that. It's, it sounds well, terrifying that, and horrifying, but at the same time, that's a enthralling. One. That's very brief. There's a lot of stuff in the middle that went on as well, you know. Mm. That's what I mean. You could tell it, fill, fill us all in on that. There's another book there for you, mate. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I came back like a month later, and I just wanted to get in and get out, and uh, that's what I did. I went and got out, but at the same time, there was a sci-fi. Um, exhibition in Yokohama which I'd been invited to and um, I was like well probably I should just drop into that and the guy what's his name Sawyer the guy that wrote um, you know what's his name Sawyer is it David Sawyer yeah guy that, no Tom you know oh, no. Um, flash, flash Forward the TV series Flash Forward the book yeah I can't think of it anyway go, go on Anyway, he was the Canadian guy. He was asking me, should I come over? I'm so much your choice. But I mean, I was at the sci-fi thing, and I, I said, well, this is probably the most realistic sci-fi conference we're ever going to Sorry, conference, I said, cause conference we're ever going to have. You know, we've got three nuclear power stations still burning, earthquakes every few minutes, half the country taken off with, uh, taken away by tsunamis. And they were like, yeah, yeah, it was. It was so. That was such a surreal time. I, I, and a lot of people don't really understand how much the area, how much of the area was taken out by the summit. It was basically a thousand kilometers from north to south. So it's like driving from Brisbane to, to Sydney, Sydney, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's a very densely populated area because the Japanese coastline is quite narrow. To some areas, you could be like the five kilometers before the mountains start. So it's very jammed because not much is built on the mountains. Yeah. So it just took it all out. I mean, I went up. I left and then I came back two months. Oh, no, no. So while I was that month, I actually went up north to take supplies up to this town that had been wiped out. I've got some great video of it. As we drive through, it's just like Hiroshima. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's just like just like a nuclear bomb went off. Mm. And my wife was the first woman volunteer to get there. And um, when we were unloading the food, these old ladies, they said, you're the first. And she just broke into this song. She's a really good singer. And she just started singing. And all the ladies broke down crying. It's, it's really classic scene. I've actually got it on video. I'll send it to you. It's really cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah it was, that was a wild time, mate. A wild time, and that kind of that was, I guess, what part of the catalyst to kind of you know waking you up and looking into, you know, I guess you probably read about the lies from becoming out from the Japanese government and de the denial or all that sort of stuff. Is that yeah, what yeah. maybe you sort of cottoned on and went, "Hang on, what's going on here?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I said, I'd already gone off the mainstream media from two thousand and three when they bombed Iraq and. Mm -hmm. I had the SARS outbreak at the same same time, and I just said, "This is ridiculous. This is so manipulated." 
But it, it got me looking at alternative media because I needed to really find out what was going on because um, I couldn't get any proper information off the, um, off the mainstream media. And I asked a few people, you know, give me some other source. And then I started looking at it. And then, you know, after it simmered down, I kept looking and reaching them. And I, you know, and that's really when it started to wake me up, you know, 9-11. Because, you know, until then, I, I still believed the 9-11 was a terrorist attack. You know, I really did. And then, you know, then you know, the uh, how we show, I took that first step into the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, and then just the big leap all the way in. <laughs> and once you take that big leap all the way in, it's a shocker. It's a big shock in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, you never get out. That. You never get out. Of You're it. never going to get out. But it's it's a shock to the whole system in reality. You know, you kind of need that. Thing. People people need that, Tim. You know, they yes. need that shock to kind of shake them out of their fucking slumber. You know, just kind of slap them in the face a bit and go, you know, so that way they can kind of realize what the whole fucking thing is just a lie. It's all lies on lies on lies. You know what I mean? The whole thing. Mm. Yeah, the education, the history. I mean. I put in an example that I think I put in a quote in the beginning of the book about oil. You did. I was going to read that one as well. Yeah, go um, ahead. Allow, allow me. Um, That's the important one, that one. It says, uh, L. Fletcher Powerty, who served as Chief of Special Operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President John F. Kennedy, remarked, Any geologist will tell you, well, most geologists will tell you, that oil is created by the magma of the earth. The oil wells in Pennsylvania that were pumped out dry at the turn of the century and capped are now filled with oil again. So there you go. You know, they know. You know, yeah. We're all told this artificial scarcity oil is going to run out. You know, Peak oil, all that sort of bullshit. You know, well, that, how I mean, much of that was a lie? Seriously, it was all a lie. It was the Rockefellers mm-hmm. that decided that it was a fossil fuel. At the beginning of the, the century, they said, um, they had a conference said, well, we'll just make it a fossil fuel. They just did it like that. They said it's a fossil fuel. So they just did it to create scarcity so they could manipulate the price. Exactly. But this is still being taught. It's still being taught in school that oil comes from bloody dinosaur. <laughs> I know. I mean, I mean I when, if you, any person sits there and thinks about this, it doesn't make sense. And yet people still believe it. I, and you're right. I, I was telling this guy, you know, he's a really intelligent guy. I said, well, mate. There must have been a lot of dinosaurs running around the bottom of the ocean. And on that, there must have been a lot of dinosaurs running around 30,000 feet under the ground. Like, really? Mm. Anyway. Yeah. That's how deep they fucking pumped this shit out. Eh? You know, yeah, I know. Like, yeah. But no, it was all dinosaurs and you're, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist, Tim. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, yeah. well, let's let's get back to the book a little bit. All right. So for the, for the folks out there, let's give in, because Andy's listening along here, hasn't uh, had a chance to read it as yet, but um, let, let's just go through a bit of, a bit about the book. You know, let's, let's, if you're going to give it a rundown in a few minutes, let, let's just, you know, take us through some of the, the characters, the, um, the plot line, all that sort of stuff. Let, let's, let's, let's talk a bit about the book now. Okay. So, it's it's based on how the world is going now, where it's heading, and what it could be heading into, into a fantastic, thriving society without governments, with free energy, with people using their, their telepathic skills and other spiritual skills. 
we're on the other timeline where we're heading at the moment. Well, it's just heading into a utopian, dystopia, uh, dystopian, dystopian, totalitarian society. Okay, so it, it's basically it starts off, and, and what why I've got Bitcoin in it and why Satoshi Nakamoto is in there is because Bitcoin. I mean, when there was the big rush for Bitcoin a few years ago, people misunderstood what. The whole concept of Bitcoin was about Bitcoin was not about making a quick buck. Bitcoin is about a solid currency, one that cannot be manipulated and printed out of existence. It's decentralization of the monetary system. It mm -hmm. takes the power of the creation of money away from the elite and puts it back in the hands of the people. Okay, that's the reason I've got Bitcoin in there. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, I mean, anyway, you, I'll just sorry, yeah, I'll okay. just comment on that, Tim. Yeah. You ask anyone around, you like, you say, "What's your thoughts on Bitcoin?" And they'll just tell you. They'll they'll probably just grab their phone and tell you what it's worth in money in in dollars. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's that's the level of thinking of this decentralized form of of trading and currency. That, you know, that's that's where people are. So, it, I guess again, the propagandists got hold of them very quickly and manipulated the way people can perceive what Bitcoin really is actually about. Like you've just said. Oh, yeah, I know they came out and said for money laundering and, mm. you know, for black marketeering. I mean, come on, guys, who's been doing it all before that? All the main banks. Exactly. exactly. I mean, come on. I mean, they, the Deutsche always Bank, blame all drug dealers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah who's yeah. been, who's been it, running it? There's pesky drug dealers. We've got to get them under control. Yeah. yeah but, but you know what I mean, right? Like that, the, the, it's not just that, but I mean, the level of people's perception of it is, is you know let's well what's yeah bitcoin oh yeah what's it worth now in in money you know what's it what can i if i have bitcoin mm. what can i sell it for you know like they, they're just fucking missing the point you know it yes. drives me crazy yeah yeah that's right it's decentralized it's putting the power back into the people yeah yeah james corbett mentions that all the time you know about all these decentralized currency platforms and stuff it's like he's trying to keeps keeps reiterating the point it's not you, you don't miss the point on this you know this is what it's really about it's about decentralization that's the key taking the power away from the central all righty folks if you're enjoying that podcast please head over to our patreon account at patreon.com forward slash real news australia and you can listen to the rest of that podcast. This is actually a bonus show that we do for all of our Patreon-only supporters. So just giving you guys a taste of half of the show. There is still a complete other half of the show remaining left to go. Uh, all the details will be in the show notes for you to click on. Uh, there will be a link in there. I will also include a link to the uh, book uh, written by Tim or Vindal Vandekoff, as he likes to go by, is his pen name. So you can actually download and read that book for free and, of course, then listen to the interview or vice versa. It's completely up to you. But it will be available um, via the link in the show notes. Hope you're enjoying the content there. Like I said, there's a whole other bonus content show just for the supporters uh, of Real News Australia and the General Knowledge Podcast. Uh, for as little as just five bucks uh, a month, like seriously, it's nothing, guys. Five bucks a month, you can come on board as one of our supporters and get access to all the bonus shows that are there. We've got um, some really good guests. We've interviewed a physicist named Wal Thornhill about the electric universe concept. Uh, we've also uh, interviewed Max Egan as well, um, exclusive show just with Max, talking about hidden history. Um, we talked about the Stanford prison experiments, 
talked about tripping out with the boys on things like ayahuasca and cannabis and DMT and mushrooms and stuff. Some really cool content there, some great times and some good shows. Uh, so yeah, please show your support and jump on board. Thanks again. Thank you.